I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. This morning, I'm in Valparaiso, Indiana, and I'm sitting with uh, Kevin Gary, who's a professor of education and chair of the Department of Education at Valparaiso University. So thank you for for sitting down for this conversation. Thank you. And uh, the reason we ended up talking was the last four years you've had this this different kind of position within the university. Tell us a little bit about what that is and and why it's relevant to Christian teaching and learning. Certainly. Um, So I am the privileged holder of a a professorship, a four-year professorship. It's more of a, uh, it's called the Bepler Chair. I guess you could call it a stool. It's temporary, but it's been four years, which has enabled me to have some course release time. Uh, and do research. And then the fourth year, the Bepler professor is charged with running a seminar, which is called the Wente Seminar. And that uh, springs out of the research interests of the Bepler professor. And so uh, my work is, is in a variety of areas, but one area that is increasingly of interest to me is, is Christian teaching and learning. And so the seminar has been focusing on that, uh, actually using your book uh, on Christian teaching as one of the primary texts, but also then doing research and working on a, a text on, on boredom in education as well. And so uh, we'll be hoping to have that come out next year sometime. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of impressed that you've taken this professorship and given this chunk of it over mm-hmm. to Christian teaching and learning questions, mm-hmm. because... My experience is, and the literature suggests this, that you know, teaching and learning is not, not always taken as a deeply intellectually interesting thing in the academy. So what, what, what led you to decide to focus on this question rather than you know, some, some detail in Kierkegaard or, or something yeah. that was going to have some, some academic kudos to it? Yeah, that's, that's a, you're right that it's, it's you know, oftentimes uh, departments of education can feel marginalized, misunderstood, and underappreciated. That generally is a common narrative that I encounter. And I think there are, you know, a lot of historical reasons for that. But I, I sometimes think we undermine our own attempts at, 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 you know, being heard and being listened to. And so um, I think we have to show that we actually have something valuable to offer to the conversation. And this is an area, it's an area of interest to me, but it also is an area that I'm not an expert at this at all. And, and, and your work actually has shown that experts are kind of hard to find in this area where, where you really are thinking about how does it inform and operationalize in practice. And so was was somewhat nervous about taking this on because I am entering into this as a, as a fellow learner with my, my faculty colleagues, but have attracted a group. Uh, there's 12 participants in the seminar, uh, people of, of, I would say, of, of deep faith and goodwill, and have been engaging the questions with, with sincerity and interest. And so that is really encouraging to be a part of, to be a part of that conversation. And, and hope that, you know, we'll continue this on into next year. It seems like we're, we're, we're growing together as a group and appreciating each other and our faith stories and traditions the awkward thing about it is, you know, it's interesting that people are drawn to this group, but I would say a majority of us are feel uncomfortable talking about Christian teaching and learning, uh, as if somehow the imprimatur Christian, you know, actually says something that you're really doing in your classes. So we all, I think, come at it somewhat uncomfortable, and I find that that discomfort to be to be somewhat constructive, you know, in terms of critically thinking through what this means and not suggesting that we somehow have arrived in any way 
as as a teacher, let alone a Christian teacher. And so that's something we're we're thinking through and talking through uh, as well. What what do you think generates that discomfort? Because I mean, this this came up in our conversation yesterday afternoon mm-hmm. that that there's a sense in which bringing faith into the classroom, talking about Christian teaching and learning, even at a Christian university, can feel kind of embarrassing, right? Yeah. So, what do you think? What do you think generates that? In a sense, it's kind of a it's a strange. Like I feel like if if an alien came and looked mm-hmm. at it, they would find it kind of strange that it would be embarrassing to right. name this within the very institutional context that are there to support it. Yeah, I think I think part of it is uh, not wanting to be, you know, Christianity, and I'm I'm from the Catholic tradition, can come with a lot of negative baggage, and and there are a lot of bad examples of religious people in the world, and so concern about being cast or, or stereotyped into that type of example of religiosity. So I think there's a lot of anxiety about that. You know, just the idea that if you're religious, you're not intellectual. Those two are fundamentally in contradiction. So I think anxiety about being misjudged, miscast, uh, and therefore not really heard or taken seriously. And so sort of needing to come at it, you know, indirectly or or if at all, when you're talking about your religious faith commitments, I I think that's Part of what concerns people. The other, the other concern is, is is the charge of hypocrisy. You know, you have the rhetoric of Christianity, but it doesn't align with the practices, the way you teach, the way you engage colleagues or students, and so you're always, you know, held to a standard that you probably aren't living up to. And so it's better than to not have a standard <laughs> that, that you're falling short of. And so I think that also adds to being somewhat shy about, you know, speaking to this. And it shows me this, this fear probably points in two directions, mm-hmm. that we're afraid of our colleagues and what they're going to think of us, and we're afraid of our students and, mm-hmm. and what they're going to think of us, and that, that then yeah. conditions what kind of language we feel like we can, we can use. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And, and, and yet, you know, this group, when I, when I made the pitch for a seminar on Christian teaching and learning, my first fear was that no one would apply. Um, there are 12 spots, and, and just uh, as it would happen, exactly 12 people applied, which made it ideal because I was worried that I would either only have two applications or I would have 30, and then I have to make some you know, decisions about who's worthy to talk about Christian teaching and learning. So, yeah. so God's providence perhaps you know, enabled me to have just 12 disciples. Uh, I'm not calling them that, but, but 12 <laughs> folks that, that want to talk and take this seriously. So, yeah. so what, what does the seminar actually consist of? I mean, you call it a seminar. What's the, um, what's the actual, what are, what are the 12 going through? Yeah. So, so we're, we're looking at, you know, one of the first things we did was look at a passage from Matthew where Jesus talks about uh, teaching with parables. And so we, where he actually, it's, it's one of the, f- the few moments where Jesus is explicit about his, you know, in, in teaching, there's the reflective practitioner who's offering a rationale for why are you doing what you're doing? What moves you're making? Why'd you do that? And it's one of the few moments where he explicitly says, this is why I use parables. Here's what I'm up to. It invites certain people in, others are not able to hear. And so it was really an open-ended conversation. And it, it was striking to me personally, you know, I've been in, in Christian education teaching since 1996. Uh, and I taught religion at a Catholic high school for 10 years, but then uh, arrived at a, at a college, Goshen College, where I taught in an education department. It was the first meeting I'd ever been at where we ever talked about Jesus as a teacher, uh, which was striking to me that, you know, for the last 14 years, the first time with faculty I've ever even had that conversation. So just that to me was was cause for pause. And we talk a lot about a lot of different things. So that was the, the start of it. But we're reading your book on Christian teaching. We're also going to read Understanding by Design, a couple chapters on, on a paradigm in curriculum design that I think is, is important and has something good to say. 
Uh, and so trying to hold together deep thoughts about Christian teaching and learning with, with, with what I regard as, as really valuable and important stuff the field of education has to offer. Uh, I think one thing about the Christian intellectual tradition is, I think it was a Lutheran said, there aren't you know, good Catholic shoes or good Lutheran shoes. There are just good shoes, and a cobbler needs to make good shoes. And so I think there are certain fundamental things that, that the field of education does offer us, but, but that's not to say that you can't think about it through, through a lens that comes out of a Christian tradition. So. Mm-hmm. So what are some things you've been learning? What, what has the gain been over the last few years for you? Well, I would say, you know, in my own teaching, especially, um, there was a quote that I heard as, a, as an undergraduate from a, a priest in a, in a Shakespeare class, and we were criticizing the text. I forget which, which play. I think it was one of the tracks. I think it might have been King Lear. And uh, we were literally sophomores in every sense of that word, you know, sort of wise fools saying Shakespeare kind of got it wrong here and he perhaps shouldn't have done this. And at one point, the, the professor exasperated with us said, and I remember this line, he said, you don't judge the text, the text judges you and finds you lacking. And I just remember being quite unsettled by that and, and, and annoyed at the time, but now deeply appreciative because really what he was offering was a different hermeneutic for how you read, read certain kinds of texts. That there, this text actually has something to say to you, and more than you put it in judgment, it's, it's, it's casting judgment. And it really speaks to, and I, you've, you've written about this, this idea of, of being a, a person who reads with a spirit of charity. And so that's informed my own teaching. I used to assign way too much reading and really did kind of force students into sort of skimming for the gist uh, rather than reading uh, in a contemplative kind of Lexio Divina, like really slowly read this text so that you're not just reading to retrieve an answer, but you're actually, you know, submitting yourself or opening yourself up to be um, judged by it in some ways or interrogated by it. And so that's, that, I would say that slowed down my teaching. I, 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 I often have students read maybe 15 pages for a class, but I expect them to read it through twice. I give them a a couple difficult questions to answer that require them to bring some parts together to really um, push them on engaging with the text. And so that principle of charity in terms of engagement with text has been has been central. That's something that I've I've heard about and in, in, in writers in this area. Paul Griffith's work has has, has been important in that regard. Uh, Simone Weil's work, her essay on uh, prayer and and and, and reading. Mm-hmm. So those have been critical voices, but really really pushing students to engage with text and to treat them as as something that you know I think I think part of the latent curriculum of of the academy is that everything is up for criticism and everything is interchangeable. You can just, here's a text, there's a text, just criticize it and move on rather than know there are certain texts that actually have something to say to you. And actually these are texts that you might want to live with and engage with for the rest of your life. And it was really through my undergraduate that I began to encounter texts like that. And I'm thinking of like a text like, um, the Brothers Karamazov, I started reading when I was 20 and didn't finish it until I was 41 years old. And I just couldn't get through it because it was just, you know, I've heard that Bernard of Clairvaux talked about the monks could never write a full commentary on the Song of Songs. They'd get caught up in chapter one or two and they, they just couldn't finish. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I like to think that's the noble reason why I didn't get through the Brothers Karamazov. But it really was just being so caught by by the, the vividness of the characters and, and the insights that OCFC conveys mm-hmm. through these, these gritty stories. So that's been, I think, a key part of my teaching and finding concrete ways to push students to that kind of engagement, which means slowing down, reading less, reading mm-hmm. it more frequently. Another quote, if I may use another pithy quote that, that really struck me a few years ago, 
this was actually in a theology class, Richard McBrien, he was at a sermon, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, described, he said, you know, we're all beggars, we're all beggars pointing to the well. And I always thought that was a, a beautiful image of a teacher, which is to say you're not sort of the, you know, the banking method expert where you're dumping information, but I think in a lot of ways, we are all beggars trying to find wisdom and insight. And so going back to these texts as, as, as places where we find water and nourishment, I, I, I see that as part of the, the, the role of a teacher. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it takes a lot of pressure off having to be the expert, but rather being a, a beggar who maybe has some ideas about where the wells are and, and, and how to find them. So it's something that strikes me as kind of radical about this, and I've, I've thought this when playing with it in my own teaching as well, we saw examples in some research that I was doing in schools with folk the last few years of students quite overtly buying into essentially a productivity paradigm where what the teacher really wants from me is to complete a certain number of tasks, right? To answer 10 questions, to turn in a worksheet, to read to page 37. And and this this quite close to the surface idea that as long as I get that done, as long as I meet the productivity quota, that that was what the teacher wanted and I fulfilled all righteousness and whether I actually thought about it or learned from it or whatever is kind of incidental. And we also saw signs of digital technology Mm -hmm. exacerbating that because it lets you keep track of more things and get through Mm -hmm. more things and so on. Um, And so you're talking here about slowing down, getting through less, getting less done and so on. Connect, connect this back to the theme of the seminar for me. So um, what, what, what's the breadcrumb trail that takes us from Christian and mm-hmm. faith and teaching and so on through to we ought to question productivity as a, as a, as a goal that we communicate to our students in, mm-hmm. in their learning? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, I think, I think going back to engagement, I mean, the first thing I do in, in my class, School and Society, when students walk into the room, there's a quote on the board uh, from Rousseau's The Social Contract. Human beings are born free, and yet everywhere they're in chains. And, you know, I'm sort of standing at the, the front of the room. I, I know all their names. I've studied their their pictures. And um, and then I turn to one of the students and call them by name. And I said, David, what, what do you think of that? Do you, do you agree or disagree with that? And so in some ways, I'm trying to destabilize what I think is this productivity model where, where give me information, tell me what I need to do and I'll deliver it, you know, on such and such a date. And so I find that that transactional approach, I don't like who either of us become in that, the teacher or the student, I mean, the consumer and then the, you know, the, the service provider, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So right out of the gate, day one, I'm trying to destabilize that. And so that question you know, what do you think of that? Uh, I, and I usually try to size up a student who I think it, it could venture out into the into the full discussion day one, first first comment in class, and then you know usually um, sometimes I'll just say, what, what does anyone think of that? Someone's hand will go up, and it'll begin a conversation, and then I'll say, turn to your neighbor and and, and let's let's assess your thoughts on this. To what extent are we are we free? To what extent are we in chains? So, really beginning a conversation that can go a lot of different directions. It's it's a space that on the one hand is open and yet bounded. It's it's directed. And so trying to, you know, constantly subvert what I think is is kind of a grim view of education, which mm-hmm. which is this sort of transactional, you give me what I need and I give you right. what I need. So that's I guess a small way that I'm trying to do that uh, in, in classes. And that strikes me as a really key reframing that I think mm-hmm. is actually quite important mm-hmm. to I mean 
going all the way back through the Christian tradition to Christian ways of thinking about education mm-hmm. is not asking what are we going to get done, but asking who are we becoming mm-hmm. through the way in which we engage. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, one example, I'm thinking of another class. So this, this course that I teach school and society. And so when I think about Christian teaching and learning, I mean, it's whatever I'm teaching, I'm tied to, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the key voices that we need to include in this conversation that have said something substantial that I think really matters for teaching and learning. And, and, and certainly, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't read part of the Nicole McCain ethics about 15 pages, which is tough sledding for a lot of students. And, and they actually take on the question about, you know, Aristotle's argument for slavery, which is a tough, you know, initially when they read the title and they're getting into it, he's, he's making an argument for slavery. This is horrible. And it's only about 10 pages, but what he does in that 10 pages is he actually shows you how reason, you know, he, he grew up in a time when slavery was normative. And, and yet he's using the tools of reason to, to, to problematize it, which is really an extraordinary thing in human history, this capacity to question and interrogate practices in our cultures and say, is this the right way of things? Could it be otherwise? And he's doing that. And, and, and along the way, you know, his anthropology is this idea of a master, a master is someone whose intellect can, can rein in passions mm-hmm. and emotions. And he holds that person up as, as the supreme. And his argument for slavery actually turns out to be incredibly weak by his own standards. And so finding that the students can use reason to, to unsettle or question cultural ways of seeing that are really problematic, that then connects for me to teaching the students are repelled by this idea of, of slavery. But when you translate what Aristotle is saying, he's saying basically a slave is someone who's not able to control their passions or their emotions. And in schools, students are constantly told that in a variety of ways. Problem, problem students are told in a variety of ways, you are out of control. You do not have control over yourself, which is a, a clever way of saying you're a slave. Uh, a more politically correct way of saying you're a slave. And so what, I, what I'm trying to do in the class is on the one hand work with a rich text you know, that was written thousands of years ago, but actually has something to say to us today, but actually has something very, very specific to say to, you know, I'm teaching aspiring teachers, that you are going to render judgments uh, that reduce someone to slavery. You're not using that language, you're gonna call them you know, by some other category, but basically you're saying that student is out of control. And so um, I'm not sure where I was going with this exactly, <laughs> but, but, but thinking about a text like that and, and how it offers something enduring and important for our, for our practices to, today in school would be a connection. And then, and then pairing that then with, with someone like Augustine who criticizes Aristotle's notion of, of, of the master and says, you know, the master and mastery becomes its own form of slavery when you're constantly thinking about being in control as a master. And I find this too pairs well with, with a critique of teaching because one thing teachers often are and can tend to be are control freaks. One of the, the standard teacher nightmares that I've had and a lot of teachers speak about is this nightmare of losing control of your class mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. showing up to a class unprepared where you do not have control, mm-hmm. which creates all kinds of problems for teachers. And, and I think Augustine's, the way he solves this riddle is says, you know, look, look at the history of humankind where, where God appoints masters, masters, and then the master that, that God does appoint is Jesus as a servant, which trumps this whole master ideology. And, and so really the way the best teachers work is they work as servants, they're serving students. However, students project onto teachers, oh, you're, you're a master who wants to control me. 
And how do you then as a teacher say, no, I'm really not here to control mm-hmm. you. I'm here to, 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 to be of service in that kind of, kind of way. So, Which strikes me as another way of formulating this question of, of who am I becoming and, and how does the way that I teach help yeah. shape the person I become? Mm-hmm. And is that compatible with my, with my Christian formation? So, yeah. yeah. So you've got this book coming up that you're starting to work on on boredom, and I'm sure you're bracing yourself for a year of bad faculty jokes about the topic. So what 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 was interesting about boredom? Why why is this why is this why does this need a book, and what drew you to the topic? Well, it's fascinating. Whenever I bring it up, um, when I say I'm writing a book on boredom, the almost the universal reaction is that sounds really interesting. So it's it's intriguing to me that something as you know like boredom provokes interest. So this springs from a lot of my work. I, you know, in teacher education, I've I've observed, spent hours and hours in, in K to twelve classrooms, and I'm always amazed at how boring so many of them are um, for me. You know, uh, as an adult who has a capacity to, to to be still and sit, and I'm always amazed at how compliant the students are in those contexts. They should be horribly bored, and perhaps they are, but somehow they've managed to um, accept it. And, and so I, I see a couple things happening. You know, I, I find students are bored and they become kind of pacified. There's a loss of agency. So, so I'm in context where I, I actually think the students should be misbehaving. They should be disruptive right now, but they're not. And that's troubling because they've become so placated with filling out various worksheets or copying PowerPoints or whatever the activity may be. On the one hand, on the other hand, there's this trend. It seems to me in education to boredom is sort of the elephant in the room that you have to you have to run from. My first, uh, my son's first day of kindergarten, we walked in as parents. We got to bring the kids and drop them off. And uh, at each at each workstation, there were f- uh, four iPads, which I, I was really uh, sad to see that. I mean, on day one, the teacher's already going to kind of the candy of of of, of the computer land is an iPad. And so I, I see one of two things. On the one hand, students are either bludgeoned to accept boredom as normative or they're conditioned to find ways to escape it. And you know, looking at, at all kinds of activities, whether it's learning how to play an instrument or read a difficult book, enduring boredom is a part of what it means to live well and, and to get good at something. You're gonna have to you know, encounter boredom. And so there's, there's that part of it, but there's also questions that interest me related to meaning and purpose. So a person who's profoundly bored you know, is often raising some fundamental existential questions about how ought I live my life? What should I be doing with my time? And so as someone who's interested in Christian teaching and learning, this is a topic that quickly moves into questions about meaning and purpose, which the Christian tradition is, you know, is, is fraught with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also then speaks to a tradition in, in the Christian monastic tradition where monks were contending with ascedia. And, and how to, to, to be steady with their work and not grow weary or listless or lose purpose. So it's a topic that brings together both my interest in actual classrooms and the, and the struggles of, of teachers dealing with, with bored students and how do you uh, and keep them engaged, but how do you keep them engaged that doesn't malform them into boredom avoider, avoiders on the one hand or, or boredom you know, mm-hmm. pacified folk on the other. And so, so it brings a lot of different areas together uh, the work is 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 drawing obviously on psychology, but also uh, theology and um, and certainly you know educational scholarship as well. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as interesting to think about the uh, what it's set over against as well, because it, it often strikes me that uh, sometimes people talk as if the opposite of boredom needs to be entertainment, mm-hmm. right? and and that's not necessarily the opposite of boredom. Right? 
No, you're right. And that's where, this is where I hope to, to make a contribution. The, the research on boredom, um, some of the best work that I've seen, um, oh, there's a quote, you know, a person looks into the abyss and the abyss looks into, into them. And, and I, I find that there's, there's just a deep fascination, especially in a lot of literary text, you know, Madame Bovary, and uh, uh, with boredom itself as this sort of abyss that draws us in. The other side of boredom, though, seems to be something like Christian hope to me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an area that I need to, you know, uh, uh, explore more. But, but I don't find, I find boredom to be either naively assumed as a problem we'll solve, we'll, we'll out-entertain ourselves, which I think is absolutely, you know, goes against human, human anthropology. We're not going to run, outrun boredom. So I think there's, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the human condition. So we'll out-solve it, or it's just a problem that we have to live with, you know, sort of Sisyphus. We're just going to keep pushing the boulder up the hill, and we're stuck with this problem. I do think the Christian tradition, especially in its supernatural virtue of hope uh, points to a different way of being and living in the world. And so that's, that's an area that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to develop. And part of that actually draws then on Marcus Borgman's notion of focal practices. These are practices that sustain virtues, help us live into certain virtues. And it really involves doing some oftentimes very simple mundane kinds of things, which you know, develop a certain kind of virtue. So I actually think the battle over virtue or battle over boredom is, is really comes back to mm-hmm. virtue cultivation. So what, what would an example of a focal practice be? He actually, you know, offers a simple one of, of, of making a meal and eating it with other people, mm-hmm. undistracted by any other medium. So taking the time to prepare the food and to have a conversation, you know, it's, it's a focal practice that, you know, it's just the, this is just the family meal. It's, it's certainly one that, that is being lost. Another one would be going for a walk. Again, you know, uh, letting yourself, giving yourself over to the immediacy of going for a walk. Uh, he also brings up running, and uh, I'm not, I'm not a great runner, but when I, when I used to run, you know, running involves a fair amount of boredom and pain, but you have to get through that to then get to, you know, mm-hmm. the runner's high, so to speak. And so each of those activities, I think, have a, 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 a boring veneer. You know, making mm-hmm. a meal, having, you know, these sound like dull mm-hmm. things. These aren't very exciting things. And part of what a focal practice does is it, it, it pushes you to push through that to get to the, the, the intrinsic goods of the practice, which you, you really can't know from the outside, nor can you experience them without having to battle you know, certain degrees of boredom to get to those goods. Mm-hmm. So those would be a, a few uh, simple examples. That, that and they strike me as, as in, in, initially they strike me as kind of outside the classroom, and yet I immediately think of a colleague uh, of mine at Calvin who has a, a, a little classroom ritual that he uses where when he asks certain weighty questions in mm-hmm. class, he sends the students out of class to walk to a certain landmark on the campus and mm-hmm. back talking about the answer to the question and then sit down again and answer the question in class. So I think there are even some quite literal ways of incorporating some, yeah. of, these, some of these practices into, uh, into teaching environments. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think probably the ultimate focal practice, one of the ultimate focal, would be reading itself. Mm-hmm. You know, reading text is arduous. the The payoffs are not often immediate, and it requires a lot of sustained time and concentration. Uh, a focal practice, Borgman, it really requires your sustained attention. Whatever it is, you're giving yourself over to it, and you're attending to it. And so, multitasking really mitigates against yeah. this kind of work. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to to reading it when it comes out. When can we when can we expect the book roughly? Well, the deadline is December first, so I'm of, gonna, of this year of 2020. Of 2020, yeah. and so I'm not sure how long publishers take, but so yeah. sometime in 21. 21, yeah, yeah that's so, right. Yeah. All right. 
Well, I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to uh, to talk to us about what you've been learning, and I hope the uh, the remainder of the seminar proves as rich. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net.